Uh, we're going to continue our ethos uh, series this morning. Uh, so before we do so, let's just pray. Lord God, we just thank you for this opportunity to once again just to be here, uh, to be with each other, to worship in this place. Uh, we remember last year, Lord God, when we, we had restrictions, and this time last year we, we weren't able to meet together. We certainly weren't able to raise our voices up and to sing together and to worship and to come together and just open up the scriptures like this. And so we, we pray you help us never to take this for granted, Lord God, uh, never to take this opportunity for granted of being able to see each other, to chat to each other, to catch up with each other, Lord God, to share life with one another. And I just pray that you would bless us as we gather. Every time that we gather, that we'd get a sense, not just of just being together, but a sense of you in the mix of all of that, Lord God, that it's you who's pulling us together. It's you that's leading the conversations. And even now, as we open up the Scriptures, as we open up your Word, Lord God, I pray uh, that you would draw us to each other and draw us to yourself, Lord God, that you would you would bind us together as we used to sing, Lord Jesus, in that old chorus, that you would bind us together with cords that cannot be broken, uh, and that that cord would be you in the midst of all of this, Lord God. We really do want you to be the center of what we are about as followers of you, Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would bless us, that you would open us our hearts, that you would open up our minds today as we just, as we just come and we sit, Lord God, at, at your feet and we learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to continue our series on our ethos where we've been looking at the things that matter to us as a church at Metro Christian Centre. And we've already looked at the fact that scripture is important to us, uh, that we are seekers, that we are seekers of God is important to us, that the spirit of God is important to us. Over the past two weeks, we, we stretched that one out for two weeks, we, we've looked at the importance of service. And this morning, we're going, to, we're going to look at something that I think is really crucial, even though all of that was also really crucial. Uh, but I'm going to talk about something that's really really close to my heart, things, something that we really should ought to value as a church. And I don't think churches generally value enough, uh, but that is the importance of Sabbath. And that I want us to be a Sabbath church, and I'll explain that as we go on. But if you have your Bible with you, if you can turn with me please to Matthew chapter 11, and verse 25 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, come to me all you who are weary, and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you, I will give you rest. That's a great promise, isn't it? That's a great promise. And I really want that to be the heart. If Jesus is at the center of our church, then, then as radical as it might sound, rest should also be at the center of our church. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about service and that service is important to us and it's got to be one of our values here that we want to be a church that serves we want to really be a church that serves as part of our ethos and I don't mean that strictly in the sense of church programs or church meetings but in the sense that in our lives in the wider context of our lives that this that this 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 compassion in our hearts towards others that if we are people who engage with the Scriptures, if we are people who seek God, if we are people who are being taught and led by the Holy Spirit, as we've already discussed, then our hearts will eventually gravitate towards others. It's just the natural fruit of our lives. It should be something that flavors our lives as followers of God. And if that's the case, then as such service, service is just part of growing with Christ. It's just part of our discipleship. And it's not something that we, it's what we're forced to do. It's something we genuinely want to do. 
It's not something that has to be manipulated from us. It's not something that has to be pulled from us through some burden, some command of you must do this or or through through peer pressure or even through some church vision statement or some tagline. It should just be, we should be people who want to serve others. It's a heart thing, isn't it? Isn't it? And the heart matters. The heart matters. You can't mass produce that. You can't manufacture that. There's no amount of preaching or teaching that will just do that if you listen to it. Ultimately, it can only be grown and nurtured as we walk with God. And for all of us, service in our lives will look very, very differently. For some of us, that will mean it means in our workplaces, we actually give more attention to our work colleagues and maybe the things that matter to them and the things that, that they're going through. And we, we kind of chaplain them, I suppose, in our workplaces. And we care for our work colleagues. It might mean for some of us that we just take someone for a coffee each week. Or we assist someone in our neighborhood. Or we, we check in on them from once in a while. For some of us, it might mean that we're involved in a church program. Or that we're volunteering in something in our community, in a community group. And as Helen has just mentioned, there's things that we want to do as a church. There's things that we want to do as a church in this area around our church as a means of reaching out a helping hand to this local community. And as with all those things, and as Katie's just said, those things are going to only happen if there's people who are willing and able to invest themselves. We know that, don't we? We say yes. But we know that, don't we? We, we can't do it if there's not people able and willing to do it. And I want you to understand something, something really crucial this morning. And I need you to understand this, that when we make these suggestions, that when we're saying we'd, we would like to do this next year, we'd like to do a parent and toddler group, we'd like to do a community cafe, we, we understand that if there is nobody, then there's nobody. Some of you have gone really like straight-faced. But if there's nobody to do it, if there's nobody able then there's nobody. We get that. And I'm going to say something dangerous here. That's okay. You've gone quiet. But that's okay. If we can't, we can't. Now, don't get me wrong. I know we're all in our meds, but our hands are thinking, well, I know some people could, and I know such and such could, and I know No, 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 no. We, we, we claim that we know of us and their lives and the detail of their lives really well, and we think we know what their schedules look like and all that they have to carry and all that they have to go through, but we don't. We can only speak really genuinely about ourselves. And if there's no one who's able, because they haven't got that emotional capacity or that time capacity, then there's nobody able. That's okay. We need to understand that because we all have limits. All of us here have limits. We all only have so much availability. We only have so much time. We only have so much energy. Each of us only has so much emotional and physical capacity. So it's not just about time, but if there's so much going on in our lives that's stressful and driving us up the wall, then there's only so much else we can add to that. We understand that. We've got to understand that. Because we're all fragile people. You might think you're strong, You might think you can handle anything, but trust me, I felt like that once. And then the rubber hits the road and you find out it's not true. We're all fragile and we're all finite. And as a Christian author called Edith Schaefer said, and this is really important, she says it is imperative. It is imperative to remember that it is not sinful to be finite and limited. 
It's not sinful to be finite and limited. It's not sinful to only have so much capacity and so much time and so much availability. To be human is to be finite and limited. God made you that way, and God's okay with that. You don't seem convinced. The problem is we're often not okay with that. Especially when it comes with our ideas of what we think other people should be doing or or our idealism or our idealist expectations of what this should be doing and what should be happening and what should be going on. We can put these burdens on other people thinking they can do this. We never ask them of ourselves. We're often asking about other people, but we have this expectation. We don't understand people have limits. And I don't want to be a church where people are breaking all the time. I don't. We have people here who've come to us, who've come and spent some time with us and rested with us before returning because they needed the rest. We've had other people who've joined us here, even recently, who've come because they've been burnt out. I'm not going to point them out. I'm sure if you get to know them, they'll tell you. And I don't want to be a church that breaks people. And I don't want to be a church that just ignores people's limits and doesn't take people seriously enough and just takes people for granted. when When I was growing up, my... My mum and her friends would always gather around our kitchen table at the end of the day. It was like the local neighborhood meeting place. And I would meet, meet every day, my mum and her friends would, would gather around. And I'd come home from school, and every day, guaranteed, my mum and her friends would be gathered around our kitchen table. And the table would be stocked full of cups of tea and coffee and biscuits. There'd be this bluish-gray cloud of cigarette smoke just hanging below the ceiling line. And huddled beneath this bluish grey cloud would be my mum and her friends kind of, you know, catching up on family stories, sharing the local gossip and generally putting the world to rights because that's what people do when they get together. And I remember getting home from school one day and I looked pretty low and my mum and my friends were there and my mum could tell I was pretty low and she asked me what was up and I turned around and I said to her that I just had some schoolwork that had just been set it had just been set that day, and it needed to be in by the end of the week, a couple of days away, and I just didn't have the time. I didn't have the time to do it, and I was really, really stressed about it. And at that point, one of my mum's friends, a really nice lady, she is a nice lady, a well-meaning lady, turned around and said something that really riled me. She said, well, you've just got to make time. Have you ever been told that? Have you ever said that to someone? Yeah, yeah. You just, you've just got to make time. Now that riled. That really, I honestly, I really wanted to snap, but I bit my lip. I bit my lip. And I screamed inside, and I just didn't respond, and I just left the room and went straight upstairs. Now I think I know what she meant. Because sometimes it can mean the right thing. When people say that word, you've just got to make time. Sometimes... People, what they're saying is you just need to prioritize better and you need to decide what's important and what's not, and that's good. Sometimes they're saying you're just lazy and you need to get off your backside and do something, and sometimes that's true too. But not in my case at that time. I won't go into why, but I literally didn't have the time. And those words stung. And they were uncurring, and they were unhelpful. Instead of having a burden lifted off my shoulders, I just felt as if more of a burden was placed on my shoulders, and I left the room even heavier. Now, I didn't know it then that I, I kind of struggled with depression and anxiety and stuff then, and I don't know if that played a part, but sometimes people say 
the most stupidest things in order to be helpful. And we just say these glib things. Because I wish, oh, I wish I could make time. That would be an amazing skill to have, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? I mean, as far as superpowers go, forget flying and being invisible and x-ray vision and superhuman. Making time would be the most useful superpower to have. It'd be amazing. I mean, I know, I know a stitch in time saves nine. That's what they say, isn't it? A stitch in, I know it's not to do with time. But if, if it was truly possible to weave minutes and crochet hours and knit days, I wouldn't have spent all those years training to be an engineer. I would just learn how to craft time. Because we would all need time, don't we? Every week. There's not a week that goes by that I think, oh, if only I had a bit more time. But sadly, none of us can. And yet with the demands that are placed on us today, with the, with the, demands of, the, the amount of tripe, dribble, lifestyle advice and life acts that is given out, the amount of the expectations that are placed on us by our busy world and by other people around us, well-meaning people I can't help but think that some people are under the illusion that mere humans can make time. And we can't. Now, if you're someone sat here today and you have the luxury of time, please understand, you, have a, you occupy a very privileged position in our world. You do. Please don't take it for granted. Because life is demanding. And we all have limits And we all need to understand and respect those limits of others. And the sad thing is we understand most of us often understand them well of ourselves. We're just not very good at translating that understanding into the lives of other people. So during lockdown, some people got time. They did. They did. They got time. I would tune into the radio and they'd be interviewing people on the radio and they'd be asking questions during lockdown. With this time you've been given, what new skills have you learnt? What new talents have you picked up? And I would sit and listen to the radio as people would talk about, oh, well, you know, I've always fancied learning Japanese, and I've suddenly got the time to learn that, so that's what I've been doing. Or I've always fancied more time in a garden, and I've suddenly got more time. And I would listen and think, who are these people? Because I don't know about you, but I didn't get more time during lockdown. Anyone else? Work carried on. Now, I know some people are going to be wrong. It was a difficult time. I don't want to make light of the situation, please. I know some people got furloughed and it wasn't great, but not all of us got that gift of time. Now, there were things that stopped. So in our, our, in our home, in our family home, the daytime got crazy. As it suddenly became a place of work for me and Steph, for me for a little while, I went back into the office in July because the boss said it wasn't working and we all got pulled back in. But for, for, for this tight nexus of time, suddenly this, the home became not only a home, but a workplace for both me and Steph and the school. We're two teenage lads who, who had IT problems every single day and our broadband wouldn't work and be switching it, flicking it on and off and giving advice and then making dinner. And suddenly, suddenly that daytime period become congested and extraordinarily busy. Evenings we suddenly had free, which never happened, but we couldn't go anywhere in an evening, apart from walk around our neighborhood. And it was always the late evening after we'd always kind of worked to try and catch up on the time we'd missed during the day. So it was always late in the evening in that unproductive time. So it was not like I could suddenly flick out a book and learn Japanese. I'll actually learn how to play the guitar, because I should really do with learning to play that. It'd probably be helpful. But not all of us at a time. Now, saying that, 
Life in, the, in, in lockdown did stop to some extent. Things we were involved in ceased. And it did give most of us the time to understand our limits and to reassess what is important, what is not, what we can do healthfully as people, what we can't do healthfully. We learned good lessons, I hope. Most of us maybe un- discovered our neighbourhoods. There's some pathways around my streets where I live that I've lived there for 14 years and I've never seen since the past 18 months. And it's been good. We've learned some good things. We've understood the importance of rest, I hope. We've understood, some of us, we've understood better rhythms in life, maybe. But sadly, even though we, some of us have understood it, only though, even though some of us had that gift of time, even though some of us had the chance to unplug, and we've understood that about ourselves, our, expect, our expectations of others haven't really changed as much. And as a society, and maybe us, and I've got to ask this about us, and we've got to ask it about ourselves, but maybe our expectations of others, and of our organizations, of institutions, well, maybe they've still remained high. And so we've given ourselves some slack, but we've not had the grace to extend that to others. And maybe society was still egotistical, and maybe we're still consumeristic, and maybe we still have, can have this tendency to view others as just being commodities, and that other people are just resources to our lives and what we want to do. Now I'm saying all of that because I want you to understand that as MCC, as well as service being part of our ethos, I want us to grasp Sabbath needs to be a vital part of it as well. And so a church, and this doesn't always happen, and it hasn't always happened, and we need to understand I want us to be a church that encourages and cultivates and exemplifies healthy rhythms in life. Is that okay? I want to be a church that truly understands that work, rest, and play are all important, vital gifts from God. But if we don't manage them wisely enough, they actually become unmanageable and they end up breaking people. I want us to have a church as a heart. And I mean, just not, I don't want to say church, I'm not on about leaders, I'm on about us as a church. I want us to have the heart that we don't view people as commodities or resources. You are not a resource this morning. That is not who you are. And we need to resist this burnout culture that happens quite a lot in other churches. It does. Where our expectations of others or maybe the church as a whole, or maybe the leadership of the people who generally make up the church, or the worship team, or the people who do tea and coffee, or the people who do the tech, or the people who we just generally don't notice most of the time as we come in and we go out, maybe, that actually our, our, our expectations of us just become burdensome and exploitive. And I don't want to be that kind of church, because human life is not about productivity. You are not a fleshy bag of a factory. That is not what you are. And to place my cards on the table and to declare a bias this morning, and and, and I've got a lot to say this morning, please give me the time. But I've learned this lesson the painful way. And for those who know me, you'll know that 11 years ago, I had a full-on nervous breakdown, and I wrestled with the scars of that on a weekly, weekly basis, week in, week out. And having a breakdown is something that I refuse to do again. Not only that, it's, refu- it's something I refuse to see other people go through. I don't want to see it happen to anybody else. I don't want to see anybody here go through that. Because exhaustion is not worship. 
It's not what God made us for. Exhaustion is not worship. Life is difficult. And when Paul tells us in the New Testament to bear with one each other, one and each other with love, that's part of that. Now in the passage we've just read, Jesus says some really important things, powerful things. I think life-changing things into the rhythm of our world if we grasp this. And one of those things is in that verse, those verses 28 to 30. He says, doesn't he come to me? And maybe this applies to you this morning. It certainly applies to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you. And Jesus doesn't say, I will give you something to really complain about. Because, you know, I've had that bit of advice in the past as well. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says. Let me teach you, because I am humble and I am gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke fits perfectly, and the burden I give you is light. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? Now, I've wrestled with these words. I always wrestle with these words. Because I understand, and we've discussed numerous times, even as we were talking about being seekers of God, when Helen shared that with us, I know that following Jesus isn't easy. It's not, is it? It's not an easy thing. I know that Jesus calls us to pick up our cross daily. I know that discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, involves this process of dying to self and dying to our egos and learning to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. I'm also aware that hardships are a part and parcel of life. Life's difficult. And that following Jesus doesn't mean that we somehow evade the difficulties or the disappointments or the traumas and the pains and the sorrows that life throws at us. And additionally, I'm also aware that in some places in our world, following Jesus means persecution. Your life could be literally at stake. And yet at the same time, Jesus assures us that his way is restful. And that he is a gentle and humble teacher, which he is. And that his yoke is light. And when Jesus used this image of a yoke, he's, he's got his farming image, by the way. I won't touch on this for too long. But he's on about the fact that when two oxen would be put together to plow a field, then there'd be a wooden beam put between them, a yoke to pull the plow. And when Jesus uses this image, I want you to understand that he's implying that he's the other oxen. He's the other bull. And he's saying, walk with me, walk alongside me, take my yoke of me. I've got the other side of this. I've got the other end of this. You come alongside me and you learn my pace. Keep pace with me. And when I look at Jesus' pace in the Gospels, well, yes, Jesus worked. He was a busy guy, wasn't he? He did a lot. He went along place, a lot of places. But I also know Jesus knew how to rest. And Jesus knew how to unwind. Jesus relaxed. He was good at relaxing. In fact, he got in trouble for his relaxing sometimes. Jesus grew tired and Jesus grew weary. Jesus took time out for solitude and for prayer. Jesus slept. Jesus slept. That's a good thing. If your sleep patterns aren't great, can I tell you from experience, they're probably one of the most important things in your life. Get them right. Get them right. Sleep. Jesus slept. Jesus spent time relaxing and eating and reclining with people. And you know what? He didn't feel guilty about it. 
He enjoyed it. And even from time to time, Jesus had to tell his disciples to slow down, take some time out, come away with me and let's just rest and let's get away from the crowds. Didn't always happen, but Jesus encouraged it. See, I need you to understand that picking up our cross, being a disciple, is a hard way to learn. But Jesus is not a harsh, hard-hearted taskmaster. Jesus is not beating us with burdensome expectations. Jesus is not assessing your growth or our growth as a church through some inorganic idea of progress or measuring our productivity against some quota or size scale. Jesus is not like that. Now, that's not to say that change doesn't happen. And that growth doesn't take place, that maturity doesn't take place, that fruit doesn't develop in our lives as we follow Jesus. Of course it does. That doesn't mean that there isn't correction, that there aren't lessons to learn on this journey, that there isn't efforts or choices or commitment on our side to make. There certainly are. But the truth remains, Jesus is a gentle and a humble teacher. Jesus will not burn you out. With Jesus, there's no pressure to perform and there's no pressure to produce. Can we understand that? Instead, there's this invitation to walk with him, to work alongside him, to learn from his gentle, humble ways how to keep pace in life, to walk the Jesus walk. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible, but but God, but God isn't into measuring things the way we are. He's just not. We're the ones addicted to productivity and busyness and size and bigness and success. God's not. Have you ever noticed God's not too keen on people taking censuses in the Bible? There's plenty of stories about it when someone takes a census to see how productive they are or how big they are or how fast they're growing. God has a real problem. See, God's not flogging us. Can we understand that? We flog each other, that's the problem. God's not flogging us. And that brings us to this idea of Sabbath and rest. Because when Jesus uses the word rest, he says, I will give you rest. He's tapping into a huge biblical theme. And he's bringing up Israel's past. And he's reminding Israel of the alternate and contrasting community that we're actually called to be within the world. You see, Israel, if we know their story, Well, they had to be rescued from a place where they were flogged day in, day out. We know that story. They were part of a community that didn't rest. They were slaves in a community that was obsessed with production and with size. A community that treated Israel like commodities and as resources. And in contrast to that experience, well, the idea of Sabbath rest was meant to be radical. It was meant to show a better way of living. Now, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment begins this way. Remember to observe the Sabbath. It's easy to forget. So remember to observe the Sabbath. And when you read that commandment, it encourages us to rest personally. But it really stresses the importance of letting other people rest as well. And it's not about a specific day, the Sabbath, although in Israel's life there was a Sabbath day and there was a Sabbath year and there was a Sabbath year of Sabbath years. But it was meant to be a principle. It was meant to be this God way, this God perspective of looking at life and living life. Now, if you've ever read the Ten Commandments and you can read them in the Bible, they occur in two places. And you can check this out as I talk this morning. 
as we just look at this very quickly. But it's Exodus 20 and it's Deuteronomy chapter 5. And if you read those two passages where the Ten Commandments are listed and you get to the commandment on Sabbath, then you'll notice there's a big difference between the two. There's a difference given in the motivation in both passages of why you should observe the Sabbath. So in Exodus, when Moses says to the people of Israel, remember the Sabbath, he says to them, remember God's work in Reek. When God made the world, he created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. But when you get to Deuteronomy, he doesn't use that. He gets to Deuteronomy and he says, well, actually, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt. And it's an important difference. It's a purposeful difference when Moses gives these commands because there's a 40-year generation gap between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And so in Exodus 20, if you know the story, Israel has just been released from slavery in Egypt. They are fresh from the escape. So they would have had no problems remembering and recalling the hardships that they had to endure in Egypt as slaves as they produced this grueling amount of bricks. They had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Think about that. In part of this regime, a big regime, Egypt was dominated by this regime of wealth and power and status and success and size. It was a system obsessed with counting and it required the Egyptian, the Hebrew slaves to work every day of the week as they produced mud blocks for Pharaoh. In Israel, for Israel, Egypt, was not a place of rest. We grasp that. It was a place of relentless, restless production. And Egypt's gods were insatiable. They didn't stop. And yet this had been the norm for 400 years. Think about that. 400 years, these people have been brought up, born into that. That gets into your psyche, doesn't it? That becomes how you view life. That becomes the norm. And so because of this, when they escaped and Moses gives the Ten Commandments, he feels the need to remind them of God's rhythm of his working week. And so he tells the story very compact of Genesis chapter 1. And so along with the Sabbath command in, in Exodus 20 verses 8 to 11, as well as the Sabbath command, Moses reminds the people that in six days God made everything that exists, and you know what? Then God rested. And if God can rest, you can rest too. So think about that. If you've been brought for 400 years and your norm has been work, work, grow, produce, grow, produce, if that's been your norm, then that's a real big contradiction to hear. That really deeply affects you. That Moses saying to him, you know, this God, the God we serve, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, well, he's not exploitive like Egypt is. God doesn't view you like a resource. You're not just some meat factory just to work. That's not what you're about. You're made for something so much more. And life is so much more than production. So in Exodus, Moses stressing to this Hebrew nation, this young Hebrew nation, that God's intent for creation is nothing like what you've experienced so far. Does that make sense? Alternatively, 40 years later, Moses changes his tact. He changes his approach. And so the Israel in Deuteronomy 40 years later, well, they know nothing about slavery. Apart from a handful of them, the rest of them have never experienced slavery in their life. They've never been to Egypt. They've never lived in Egypt. They've never experienced a day where they're waking up every day. For the past 40 years, Sabbath has been the 
life. It's been a regular practice. They've never known anything other than the provision of God through manna and quails and water from rocks and sandals that don't wear out. That's what the stories tell us. And this generation, they don't need reminding of God's creative patterns. They've experienced it every day. It's their new norm. Do we get that? But for this generation, because miracles have been the norm every single day, they've never really known the danger and the responsibility of having to work and having to produce. And when Moses delivers these words in Deuteronomy chapter 5, then then this nation that's been 40 years old is just about to cross the Jordan River into a land of their own. And once they cross that river, that provision of manna and quails and indestructible sandals is suddenly going to come to an end. Israel will have to produce, they will have to farm, they will have to plant, they will have to sow, they'll have to reap, they'll have to build houses, they'll have to work, and that's good. But if they don't get the mentality right, then that, that pattern of production can become addictive and it can grow out of control. See, with a production mindset, it's easy to become possessed with materialism and consumerism. If unchecked, then the appetite for more and more and more can just grow ravenous and get out of control. And when that happens, then we begin to see ourselves and those around us as just means of our own agenda of success, our own dreams, our own visions, and people suddenly get viewed as commodities. And so we start labeling people as either being cogs or spanners in the works of our production machine. You ever been called a cog in the works or a spanner in the works? That's not what we are. And it's also tempting, when you get this production mindset, it's it's also tempting to look at the other nations or the other people around you or what other people have. And so we suddenly start making comparisons and we want what they have and we suddenly, suddenly start getting competitive. And so when Moses gives the Sabbath command in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 12 to 15, he doesn't tell them of God's creation rhythm. Instead, he gives them a history lesson. And he says, you need to remember that you were once, your ancestors were once slaves. Slaves are under a system obsessed with growing and production and with size and obsessed with influence. And you need to remember that this preoccupation was so choking to human life that it was only for the intervention of God's power that you could actually be delivered from it. Do we grasp that? And so in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the reasons to observe the Sabbath might be different, but they're both the same sides, different sides of the same coin. What Moses is saying in both cases to both generations, that if you forget Sabbath, if you forget what human life is really about, if you just view people as sausage factories or or just machine bags, then you you could end up building another regime like Egypt. Without Sabbath... You'll view people like resources. You'll flog them with demands and you'll burn them out. Without Sabbath, you'll get addicted to size and you'll start making comparisons and you'll get competitive. Without Sabbath, you'll actually start worshipping the idol of productivity and busyness instead of worshipping God. And without Sabbath, you'll not reflect God at all and you'll not reflect God's intent for humanity. And sadly, if you know the story of Israel in the Old Testament, They do forget the Sabbath. And they do become oppressive. So why is Sabbath so important? 
because I don't know if we need reminding me of this, but Jesus is not like Pharaoh. Can we grasp that? Jesus is not like Pharaoh. God is not like Pharaoh. And if that's the case, our churches should not be like Egypt. See, church should have a different rhythm to it, shouldn't it? Because the rest of the world burns itself out running around 24-7. But if Jesus is the center of this, and if we're going to enter into this rest that Jesus offers us, if we're keeping pace with Jesus, then there's got to be a healthy, non-exploitive rhythm of work and rest and play in this life of discipleship. A rhythm that isn't possessed by a consumer attitude or that is not driven by an idol of productivity. A rhythm that we're not flogging people, others. We're not flogging others or even flogging ourselves with these egotistical and idealistic demands. That we're actually just learning to do life together. See, one of my favorite authors, a lady called Sarah Bessie, she wrote this many years ago. She said, we need our gathering together. We need our gathering together to be a place of detox from the world. A place of detox from the world. Its values, its entertainment, its priorities, its skittered fears, its focus on appearances and materialism and consumerism. That's why churches burn out. Do you think it's possible that we could be that? You've gone quiet. Do you think it's possible we can be that? Can I, can I be honest with you? I hate saying that because it implies that I've not been honest with you. And I have, but I don't want to be a so-called successful church. I don't want us to be a so-called big church. I don't want us to be a so-called productive church using all the metrics of size and growth scales. I want us to be a good church. A good church filled with goodness. Filled with a sense of community. Where people aren't seen as commodities and numbers. But we actually treat each other as people who's made in the image of God to worship God. That doesn't mean we don't want to serve. As I said, we do want to serve. But unless there's people able and willing to get involved, we can't do that. But I'm not going to burn people out and put egotistical demands on people to do it. And please don't sit there thinking, well, someone else should, someone else can. Because maybe if God's speaking to you, maybe God's saying it to you then. But I'm not going to burn people out. I want us to be a good church. Because this culture around us, this community around us, needs to know what healthy rhythms look like. Church needs to be a place of rest. Where we come, we get refreshed. I know that verse we've just read, a different translation. I'm going off my notes now. A different translation words it a different way. And Jesus says, come to me, because I am an oasis. And you will find refreshment when you're in my presence. And that's what I want church to be. It should be a place of refreshment and rest. It doesn't mean there's no work. It doesn't mean we're not serving. But we're not burning out. We're not overwhelming each other. And we've not got these silly idealistic ideas that actually ruin church, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said. That often it's the people's dream of community that actually ruins genuine community. I just want us to be a people who love God and know how to do life together. And you might think me saying I don't want us to be a so-called successful church or a so-called big church might lack vision and faith. I would argue the opposite. And I would say it's more holistic and it's a more beautiful vision, because I'd rather be that than be a hurried and harried church seeking success. 
I just want us to have a church that has our trust in God and a church that puts faith in God's view, God's perspective, and God's ordained rhythms for human life. Let's pray. Lord, remember your Psalms. Lord God, in Psalm 46, you tell us to be still and know that I am God. And I pray that you'd help us, Lord God. It's, it's very easy, I know, just to stand up here and say these things and to listen to these things. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm very much aware, Lord God, that all of us, if we took an examination of every single one of our lives, Lord God, we'd, we'd all have points of stress and points of burdens, Lord God, and, and heavy loads that we're carrying at this moment. And so I pray you help us, Lord God, because uh, it's very easy to come into church It's very easy just to do things. It's very easy to expect things and just to treat each other, Lord God, as as resources, Lord God, instead of image bearers of the living God. And so I pray you help us, Lord God, to get this right. Because there's things, Lord Jesus, that you put on our hearts. Uh, There's things we're called to in this community. Uh, There's people out there, too, who are weary and heavy loaded, Lord God, and we want to offer some rest to them and be able to reach out to them and to speak to them and to spend time with them. Lord God, but we, we pray you help us to get this rhythm right. And again, Lord God, this is so important. It's why it's so key that we listen to your spirit, not just our agendas and our dreams and our ideas, but that we listen to your spirit and for those opportunities that you give to us and that when you tell us to go out into the fields, Lord God, we go out into the fields. And when you tell us to come aside and rest a while, that we follow you, Lord Jesus. Help us to keep pace with you. Help us to learn from you, Lord God. Help us to show to this world around us in a culture that is so insatiable, a culture that is so demanding, a culture that is so busy, a culture where nothing comes free, Lord God. Help us to explain to this world, Lord God, a God who is a good gentle, humble teacher. Help us to model that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.